Clubhouse. Welcome to Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home with your hosts, Beth Kushnick and Caroline Daly. Welcome to a special episode of Decorating the Set. Beth's latest TV project, Bridge and Tunnel on Epics, is about to have its season finale this weekend. To celebrate this show and Beth's work on it, we are bringing you not only our normal look behind the velvet rope and what it takes to decorate the set, but also an interview with Bridge and Tunnel's creator, Ed Burns, and one of the artists whose work was used on the show, Zoe Rose Schwartz. Stay tuned now for our exclusive interview with Ed Burns. Then it'll be Beth and I discussing her work on the show more in depth, and we'll end with an interview with artist Zoe Rose Schwartz. Joining us today for our special Bridge and Tunnel edition of Decorating the Set is Bridge and Tunnel's creator, writer, director, and executive producer, Ed Burns. Ed, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Happy to be here. Super happy to have you. And for those listeners out there who haven't gotten a chance to see Bridge and Tunnel, I'm going to give you a quick little summary on it. It's a highly relatable, you guys are going to love it, story of Long Island kids out on the verge of adulthood in 1980. But doing some quick birthday math, Ed, how are you possibly old enough to have been hanging out with this B&T crowd in 1980? Like, what is the deal? What was your inspiration for this? All right. So I'm 11 in 1980. And when I was developing the show and pitching it with a guy named Michael Wright, who runs the Epics Network, which is where the show airs, you know, we were talking about a lot of our favorite shows that we had been watching, which included Mad Men, Mrs. Maisel, The Crown, all period shows. And we thought it would be great to do this as a period. My initial idea was, you know, sort of six best friends, three guys, three women who all grew up together. And it's day one after college graduation. But I probably, like most people, you know, you always romanticize that time period that you did not get to experience. For me, New York City in the late 70s and the early 80s just seemed like such an exciting time to be a young artist in New York. You know, if you look at the music scene with everything that was going on on the punk rock scene, if you look at the birth of New Wave, the birth of hip-hop, then you look at fashion and photography, the fact that you could get a massive loft in Soho or Tribeca if you were an artist and it was cheap, and the fact that the city was still kind of gritty and grimy and pretty tough. Um, that was really the, the, the inspiration for going back in time. Back before Times Square had like the lawn chairs and the planters. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 exactly, exactly, long, long before that. But the interesting thing was, and I'm sure Beth told you, you know, Due to COVID, not only did we have to knock the season down from eight episodes to six, and then we also, you know, in rewriting those scripts, I took every scene that I possibly could and pull it from an interior to an exterior just to keep our cast and crew safe. But the city was not issuing any permits. So we couldn't recreate any of those great scenes that we wanted to recreate in Manhattan. 
So season one now turned into something where we're like, you know, we're setting the table where you get to get to know these kids at home before hopefully in season two, we take them into the city and we get to recreate 1981 NYC. Ed, it's Beth. Great to speak with you again. And thank you for coming on the podcast. That's just what we're all looking forward to is representing this period in the city. I was a college junior in this time, 1980, which was why it was just so great to be a part of the show. And um, it was difficult as our first show back, really the first new show in New York back during COVID. Tell me a little bit more as a director for you, how the pandemic affected the scope of the story and what we all had to do to stay safe? Well, uh, kind of like I just mentioned, I, the, the most dramatic thing was, you know, one-fifth of our budget went towards COVID protocols. That included testing the cast and crew three times a week. That included having the COVID team on set every day. It limited how long a day we could shoot. It also slowed down every day because of how many people were allowed on any one interior set at what time. So with one-fifth of the budget going towards all of that, that's when I had to go into those scripts and not only cut it down from eight to six, but probably cut the locations down by a third, which is why when you see the show, we spend a lot of time with these kids in their family homes. The other thing that we did is we did not want them to be in their family homes or in that one local bar that that did such a phenomenal job uh, sort of turning into, you know, I, I don't want, it was a real kind of like old school bucket of blood that, you know, you <laughs> turned into this beautiful small town hangout. Yeah, we got um, the glow going in there. We certainly <laughs> did. Yeah, certainly did. I think not only the shooting and all the decisions that you had to make and recalibrate because of COVID, but also, uh, you know, I personally, I don't know about you, but I, I had never prepped a job during COVID. And from a visual standpoint for you and me and Ani Schwartz, the production designer, and Jeff Mielstock, the DP, it was really a kind of interesting experience to now take what would have all happened in person and here we are focused and looking at a computer screen, you know, and having these deep discussions about how we're going to pull this off. Yeah. And that was interesting because I think, I think we all certainly missed having an office together where you could run down the hall and I could pop my head into your office to discuss something and then pull Jeff in and have a conversation with him. So there was definitely potentially, I'd say something lost in that. Certainly that, is always a lot more fun to work. I think most people right. are going to be excited to get back and see their friends and their coworkers when that opens up again. But I will say this, there was something about, you know, when we would do those massive Zoom calls and you had everybody from every department and their entire teams on a Zoom, for me as the filmmaker, rather than having sometimes five different conversations about one thing, you could just have one conversation about it. And that is, you remember, you know, if there were uh, things we needed to do a deeper dive into, you would just do the sidebar conversation. 
Yes, I, I agree. Actually, it was odd in so many ways. Actually, you and I actually met on the first day of shooting, yeah. which, you know, was pretty interesting. But in a way, as we were all focused, all the department heads kind of coming together and hearing your perspective and how you shared and, you know, being the writer and director and also starring in the show, what were the most important things to you that you wanted us to be, you know, savvy about, which, of course, was always everybody's safety. It changed the experience, but I, I think we, we all went further into character development, which, you know, for me as a set decorator is always uh, something that I love, that top layer of life. And, you know, telling these backstories of, of these kids has been really interesting. Even I didn't have that much access to the actors, you know, which is an unusual situation for me. But now for me, I look forward so much each week to watching how it all came together. And it's been really thrilling. Well, what was interesting about having to sort of, let's say, prune the scripts again, not just eight to six, but, you know, and I mentioned we had to eliminate a bunch of locations. I also had to eliminate a bunch of storylines. You know, we used to meet Mikey's family and Tammy's family, and and there were other sort of um, supporting characters that were part of the community that, quite honestly, we just, we could no longer afford to have, um, let's say, as big a canvas as, as I had initially hoped for. But in that, I had to kind of zero in just on these six characters. And I think it forced me as a writer to get to know them a little bit more deeply because I could only rely on them. You know, I I couldn't rely on, let's say, external or outside incident to move the stories forward. It had to become a more internal piece. And I'm I'm guessing for you as well, you know, typically if, if we were, let's say, next season, you might have seven different bars, restaurants, nightclubs, music venues, that you know, you and your team are going to have to dress. And this one, oh, I hope we didn't so. have as many. So, <laughs> but in not having as much, and again, we were on a pretty accelerated schedule given the COVID of it all. I'm guessing, you know, in the way that I was able to have to dive a little deeper into the characters. I'm curious if it's true for you. You know, you talked about the layers of a location. Was that also true for you? It was. I mean, I always think about the fact that any size set when you start to do these layers, especially as we got into all the graphics and the posters and the visuals and the character development based on on the personal likes of each different style, you know, it was amazing because each room kind of sucked up a lot of stuff really quickly. So where we found ourselves was uh, literally using those thumbtacks until two minutes before you, you know, (laughs) you would come in to, to see stuff. It was a daunting task to really use the actual, some of these locations for, you know, mixing of the different characters' rooms and bedrooms. But what struck me the most, and, you know, we were shooting during some nice weather, but what struck me most and is very representative in when you see the edit and everything pulled together is the three-dimensionality of, of all of it. You get the sense in that one great scene of Jimmy running down the street that this is a real neighborhood story. So for how we had to, you know, pull it all in, in order to introduce, you know, our audience to these characters, I think it worked great. 
I think it was extremely successful. Yeah, no, I think, um, well, look, we, we were very lucky, and even with a limited budget, we were able to put together a great team of folks. You know, that, that young cast was all in. Thankfully, you know, they were all super responsible as far as the COVID of it all. But then our crew was, you know, I mean, we really did put together an all-star crew. And I know, Beth, you've spoke about before. This was, you know, a lot smaller than some of the stuff you'd been doing more recently. So I think that benefited us. It was one of the things I was going to mention is the, the three kids' bedrooms that we see. You know, you guys have so much detail in those rooms. And it's been interesting as each episode unfolds, you know, I'll get texts on Sunday nights after the um, episodes air. And, you know, there's some of the obvious stuff, let's say a bigger poster that somebody might catch. Mm -hmm. But people are constantly commenting on even the smallest little details of something they saw on on Jimmy's desk or a little tiny bumper sticker in um, Stacy's bedroom Mm -hmm. or some of the stuff you put in Jill's bedroom. You know, two things. When you create a period show, I think people just get excited about the idea of traveling back in time and looking for those kind oh, of things. Absolutely. And and I'm finding at any age, I have heard from friends who are much older than both of us and say, you know, it takes them back to their youth. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I was going to ask you guys, Ed and, and Beth, did you guys have like something on set that either you were coveting or or was just like so right on that just like it came out of your own bedrooms practically? Well, I know I spoke to Beth and Anu about certain things that, you know, I knew I would have loved to have had. And it's funny, you know, you mentioned the Zeppelin poster. You know, we had to create that Zeppelin poster from uh we we were able to get some i don't know what it would be that you would probably know some like resource that had cleared photos of certain bands so there's that shot we have of mick and keith there's the one of jimmy page and robert plant you know my my dad was an old friend of rusty staub who played for the mets and rusty passed away a couple years ago and i knew rusty uh a little bit so that's why we put in Jimmy's on the back of his bedroom door, the Rusty Staub poster. So there were those little things that were fun to just, uh, you know, to just, you know, stuff that you were nostalgic about from, you know, from those days that I was like, I know I wanted certain things. Beth, was there anything you planted in the rooms that was sort of touchstones for you? Well, you know, my Easter egg, as I call it, for you was having a painting made of the exterior of the tavern. That that was great. Hung up in the tavern because you had mentioned that was, you know, something that your father, you know, as a painter would have done. And the amazing thing is you did it somehow in the style of his paintings, which Ah, really looked like something he would have done. That's great. And then, you know, for me, a big excitement, although I have to say it went by quickly, is, uh, you know, when we created that great room of black and white photographs of which members of the crew contributed to uh, when we featured the Bruce Davidson photo. And one of my daughter's photos was uh, also in that room. I think the for me, what, what was evocative is just the whole tone, you know, that like warmth in the in the lighting and in the exteriors and the interiors, it just made the whole period come alive and just happy, you know, (laughs) during, it's a, it's a great show for these times because just a little slice of life that makes you happy. Well, it's, it's funny you say that because when we were 
you know, the, the initial conversation that I first had with Epics was, can you please make a show that will put a smile on our faces, given, you know, these dark times we've been living through? Um, so that was that, that was a fun assignment to get. Um, and when speaking with Aaron Lubin, who's, you know, my producing partner and who helps me with all the scripts, you know, we said we want this to be almost nostalgic to a fault. Like, let's look back on this time through rose colored glasses, because I think that's what, you know, that's what maybe the viewers might want right now. Like we, we, we weren't really interested in trying to recreate 1980 as, as exactly as it was. But we wanted to do the romanticized version of 1980. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the warm glow. You know, a lot of that had to do with Jeff's choices with lighting, you and Anno's choices with our color palettes in, mm-hmm. in all the rooms. But also, you know, we made sure when we looked at the schedule of the day working with Colin, our AD, when Magic Hour hit, we were going to be shooting. Explain to our listeners what Magic Hour is. So that is that, you know, and it's a window that can be as long is maybe an hour and a half, but the, the real magic moment is probably those 45 minutes that surround the sun setting. As the sun is about to set, and then you get that beautiful afterglow once the set is dipped behind, which gives you about 15 minutes of just perfect golden light. And you'll see um, in the last episode, the episode that aired on Sunday, we were about to break for lunch, and we only had probably 20 minutes before the set, uh, the sun was going to set. And we still had a scene of Jimmy where he was going to take a photograph of uh, this bench and give mm-hmm. it to as a gift to his girlfriend. And um, that was on the schedule for the following day. The scene had no dialogue. And I said to Jeff, Jeff, let's go right now. Look at that light. He's like, oh, but it's on the schedule tomorrow. I don't think we're not going to run out of light. I said, who gives a crap? Like, <laughs> grab your camera. Let's shoot it. <laughs> That's if it doesn't That's work sad. out, it's on the schedule for tomorrow. Let's just try. And Jeff was like, all right, all right, let's go for it. Let's go for it. I don't know. We got that scene done in seven minutes. You know, it was gorgeous. And gorgeous, right? So that is, you know, I've made so many micro-budget indie films in my career where, you know, you're always having to sort of think on the fly and make compromises and grab a shot whenever you can that I think the, um, you know, that that instinct is always there. And that was a moment where it really... uh, it kind of worked out for us. Well, that's why behind the scenes in my department, we called you Mr. Nimble. <laughs> wow, that's a huge compliment from Miss Beth, right? <laughs> Seriously, always accommodating and ready to change it up and think outside the box. And that's what makes it such a pleasure. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, are you Team Clash or Team Sticks? Uh, You know, it's funny. I, you know, um, as a a young guy, I uh, have to admit I was Team Sticks. You know, in 1982, I think I'm in the seventh or eighth grade, something like that. And Paradise Theater comes out. Um, (laughs) And if you were listening to classic rock radio at the time, that was all over the radio. A year later, Rock the Casbah comes out, and that's when I finally get a copy of London Calling and, um, and left sticks so behind. So, but, you know, I mean, that is a conversation that, you know, I have a lot of friends who are, you know, prog rock fans. You know, Sticks, Rush, Yes, ELP. And, um, you know, they were, they were always lamenting the fact 
that, you know, bands like The Clash and The Ramones always got, you know, such great love from the critics and, and their bands who they felt were superior musicians always got bashed. So that was an ode. Pags's, um, you know, Sticks right. Clash debate was an ode to my friends who, uh, who would, you know, go to the mat arguing the greatness of those bands. Well, it's also how important music is to the entire uh, storytelling of the period. Hopefully, we uh, find ourselves in season two at, you know, all these great New York locations and hearing more music. Thank you so much, Ed, for your time today. Can't wait to work with you again. Guys, this was a a total pleasure. Again, I apologize for being late on the call, but I'm glad we worked it out. Beth, as you know, it was awesome to work with you. So our fingers are crossed. We get the green light for season two. Great. Thank you so much, Ed. Guys, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ed. Everyone, make sure you guys check out season finale of Bridge and Tunnel this Sunday, 9, 8 central on Epics and catch up with episodes streaming online at epics.com and the Epics Now app. Thanks so much, Ed. Okay, guys. Appreciate it. Beth. Hey, Caroline. How are you? I'm great. I'm so excited. We finally get to talk about one of your newest projects, Bridge and Tunnel on Epics. For our listeners, I'm going to give them a quick little synopsis of the show in case they have not passed it yet on Epics. So this show is written, directed, and produced by Edward Burns, who I know as Ed Burns. This dramedy series set in 1980 revolves around a group of college grads setting out to pursue their dreams in Manhattan while still clinging to the familiarity of their working class Long Island hometown. Beth, how did you get involved with this project? Well, I'm happy to say that we're focusing a whole podcast on this one show because uh, we all waited a long time for it to happen. It was uh, my first job back since the pandemic started, and that came with it a whole set of protocols and considerations that we had to work within. So that was a really interesting and certainly new experience for myself and my team. I was asked to do the show, and actually, I think there was some concern because, you know, within the kinds of budgets that we work in in New York and different TV shows, different levels of film work, this would be considered a relatively low-budget job. And interestingly enough, it was all written and directed and produced by Ed. Uh, Usually in a TV series, we're used to having different directors come in and kind of whole team of writers, but he's incredibly prolific and was able to pull off all of it, including acting in the show. That's insane. I know when we talked about how directors worked and how you guys work with directors as a department, it it really opened my mind to this idea of having a different director each week so that you could do those meetings where you show them each set that you had been working on and that type of thing. So when you have one director who's going throughout the entire series, how does that affect how you're doing your job? It was in this situation, a complete help instead of a hindrance because instead of prepping and shooting simultaneously, we actually really prepped the whole entire series on Zoom for about a month. We started to realize that prep was actually helping us on Zoom because we were all sharing the same screen 
And we were very focused on each issue. You know, when we would have meetings for the art department with Ed, which we did weekly, sometimes biweekly, we were so prepared with specific questions that, and he's so decisive, which, you know, I love because I'm so decisive. (laughs) Yes. It just seemed actually like an easier than normal prep. There were some big decisions made and he's so amenable and so willing to do, of course, whatever is the safest for his team and whatever is the most budget friendly. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of decisions made up front. When my actual work started on location and when we were actually looking for a stage to build some of the sets on, that's when we were kind of spread out all over the place between Brooklyn and Long Island. And it became a little complicated, keeping ourselves in our pods and, you know, adhering to all the COVID protocols. This is your first full-time job during this quarantine COVID time. So talk to me a little bit about how things have changed. How are you having to deal with all these different interactions now? I know we were just talking yesterday with an actor and he was saying how they, they couldn't even speak to one another. Basically, everybody just has their heads down, they're six feet apart, and nobody speaks to one another as the as the actors. And so he, he was feeling like very not connected to everyone. Do you How do you guys work together during this? It's very, very true that... All of these rules and regulations are the opposite of, as I've described, you know, film crew's DNA. It's something that you almost had to stop your body from doing. You know, it's like a physical thing. We're all so ready to just jump in on set and, you know, assist and problem solve and do whatever we can do. And uh, it was not allowed. The good part of the prep being you know, via Zoom and keeping us all separated is is as much as we were given decisions and directives, we sort of got through the initial process to squelch those instincts. The odd part about it is I didn't even meet Ed or the production designer in person until the first day of shooting. Wow. And that's very unusual (laughs) for you, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, usually we would be you know, the art department and set decoration department usually have offices very close to each other. You know, we're showing things to the director and dealing with each individual decision all together in a room, sitting next to each other at the art department table, wherever, you know, we're going to be in the conference room. Everybody had to adjust and we all had to adjust the multitude of the Zoom meetings, which, you know, Uh, For anybody working at home, juggling that became a new experience for me. I wholeheartedly believe in the things that we've talked about in terms of your office setup and your to, to get up in between meetings and to try to keep your environment in a way that makes you feel comfortable. I, you know, I would be doing 12 hour days, meeting after meeting after meeting and never move from one spot. And that just really started to get to me. My 
my eyes were beat up by the end of the day. And for a set decorator, that's not such a good situation. Oh, gosh, no. Yeah. It was all really different. And we were very successful at it. You know, uh, Bridge and Tunnel was the only job in New York that happened that was a new show. All the shows that came back around August and September to start prepping because everything shut down. By mid-March, the entire film industry here in New York in the tri-state area was was shut down. So we all managed to go from March until August, September. Bridge and Tunnel was the only new show. All the other shows that came back were shows that already had standing sets that were already existing you know, it made it easier for them to deal with COVID. We actually turned what might have been a more show split between Long Island and Manhattan into an all Long Island show. We turned a lot of sets that would have happened as interiors into exteriors. I'm really struck by how people are noticing how we portrayed the 70s and 1980 in the exteriors, which is a really interesting thing. You know, finding that appropriate furniture, that was probably one of the more difficult tasks that we had was uh, actually working on the exteriors. Talk to us about that, because I know this is this is a period piece, even though for all of us, that feels kind of funny, because when I think about a period piece, I'm thinking like the Civil War. But yeah. it turns out that, you know, 70s, 80s decor is a period piece now. So even though we might have them in our own homes and, <laughs> you know, that feels kind of funny. Tell me about how you have to go about dealing with a period piece when it comes to choosing different materials and, and floor and wall coverings, all those types of things. Well, you know, as being a set decorator for so many years, a lot of my shows now look even more like period pieces. I go back and watch private parts and, you know, it did take place in the 80s and 90s. Any show that I was on that was true to that that period, you see it even more so, you know, when you go back and, and watch. But the biggest issue for us is uh, when you do a period piece and it's a kind of not screaming at you, but a little bit of a delicate period piece, you must understand that within creating the world of these characters, that not only would you show and portray things that were in 1980 when the actual episodes take place. But of course, you would encompass all of the 1970s and even some into the 60s. You know, when we use cars on a street, not everybody in a period piece has a car from the exact same year. That's where people get tripped up and, you know, just stay absolutely specific to the one year. So we sort of had a wide range of items because if these families had uh, specific pieces of furniture or different cars, you know, that were handed down to them, the period would have been even earlier. So especially because the whole series takes place in 1980, we focused heavily on the 1970s. And that makes sense because obviously people aren't going to all have renovated their homes or, like you said, purchased a new car or, you know, all wearing the exact, you know, that year's clothes or or those types of things, right? So you have to kind of move back in time a little bit. 
And it also really speaks to characters. You know, when you break down the backstory for a character, you think, what is their socioeconomic level? What kind of family history are we trying to portray? In Bridge and Tunnel, we ended up with the six main characters seeing them outside and at home, and we really created a specific palette work for each one. You know, each one of the bedrooms kind of leaned towards two colors. In a way, we started out not being hyper-focused on that. In the end, when we started to notice what was happening, it became really distinct and kind of a, you know, a symbol of, of each character. They also all had you know, having just graduated college, there are specific interests. Like a photography for Jimmy was so paramount. So from a graphic standpoint, our meetings with Ed also informed us because each character was assigned a specific career orientation and what they had studied at college, where they were going, what they were interested in. Each character was also assigned different bands. And since music defines the period so much in Bridge and Tunnel, the graphics and the layering and layering of graphics in each one of their rooms with posters from musicians and from things specific to the period or to what the craft was that they're pursuing that informed who everybody was. And it kind of just took off. You know, we had all kinds of little small items and props and things that after a few episodes, you might start to notice that really defined each character. I love how you layer in things that that kids would have naturally collected over time. Like, you know, yes, they, they, they've graduated college and, and they are that age, but still they're going to have things in their room from childhood and, and from high school and from different things like layering in those makes it feel so much more lived in and realistic. Yeah, like the really specific stuffed animal. And in the case of this period, it's the first time I'll tell you that I've been dressing in or looking for bongs, ashtrays, <laughs> um, you know, a whole bunch of things that aren't on your everyday set. Well, and it's important too, I can, I, I would imagine to think about what real people were really doing. I, I always dislike it when I see like a magazine list of like, you know, this is what was, was going on in 1980 and they give you like these top 10 and you're like, well, that's what like was going on in the fashion industry. Or maybe that's what was going on like that they were printing in the magazines, but the real people, real everyday people, they didn't have that on their walls or they didn't wear that or whatever you know do you know what i mean like versus you and, and because people. sure and because these are you know younger characters this is where as a set decorator we work very closely with watching what their look is with the costume designer because all of them had relatively messy rooms so the way that you build that is with a lot of clothing laying around. And I went back and forth with my assistant set decorator a, a little bit on whether Jill or Stacy would have those boots or, you know, and we would have conversations about, you know, that's what they wore when they went to the CBGBs in Manhattan. So, <laughs> you know, that's another way in which the authenticity comes alive. Believe it or not, we spent 
spent a lot of time looking for authentic food products. Oh, wow. Tell us about that. period packaging is very expensive, and it's actually much easier to find in an earlier period and not that easy to find in this period. But, you know, we would walk to aisles at the grocery store and look for those specific crackers or a kind of more generic box of oatmeal or, or, you know, things to dress the kitchen with that weren't just a bowl of fruit, but things that were commonly eaten by this age group. Each one of the sets had our little ode to that. I'll tell you that there was one dining room, which we had dressed, and we were sort of just at the last, last minute missing something to put on the dining room table. And it was being featured, and it felt empty. Very early one morning, it came to me something that I had always remembered and saw in my growing up, which was a bowl of mixed nuts in their shells with a nutcracker. Yes, my grandmother had that. (laughs) Yeah, my mom did. And that became what we put... And who would have known, right? We ran to the grocery store. You know, luckily enough, it was approaching the holidays. Sometimes you see that whole bag of mixed nuts, but the, the point of it was that they were both in the shell and we found the nutcracker right there Is in the grocery store. Is it that silver store. nutcracker? Yes. I'm thinking of that yes. silver one and it has... You um, have it. I have yeah, it. Yeah. Everybody has it. <laughs> I know that one. It has that... What's that? What's the word I want to say? It's like it's like it has that, that texture on it so to hold yes, the nut. Exactly. Yeah, you know what exactly. I'm talking about? I used it at my grandma's. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, another room had potato chips and another room had, you know, some uh, candy. Things that felt period that we could, again, move into all the layers. You end up seeing it or you don't. But I can tell you that every time Ed would come in to a set, and we did make a big deal out of showing him the sets because the production designer and myself, uh, because of COVID, had to be in a certain pod that was allowed to engage with the director. And of course, he was an actor as well on the set. So, you know, we had kind of closed set openings, if if you understand, Uh, you know, very few people, whereas usually the whole crew walks in and sees it. So we did have a minute to get his impressions. And he was so excited. It made us so excited. But every once in a while, there was that complete connection that everybody knew. Yep. All of us are relatively close in age. This is what we grew up with. This is period proper. And we went for it and and it, it worked. So when you're talking about shopping for things like food products, that makes me think about shopping for things like wall coverings and, and flooring and, and the right fabrics of the time. That must have been kind of challenging, especially given that you're not going to thrift shops and you're not going to places that you might normally get to. Um, with COVID, how were you going about either finding those things or did you find that your your design was being sort of hemmed in by the choices you could have during COVID times being able to actually order things? 
it was definitely difficult to get things in a timely manner because the whole home decor, home furnishings industry is working overtime to uh, accommodate all the extra orders that are happening during the pandemic. And in a way, it's a great thing for our industry and home decor and home design because, you know, there have been rough times before this. It's a little difficult for the consumer in terms of having to wait. But nonetheless, yes, it was hard. I think in a way, not being in Manhattan for the job, but being out on Long Island was a blessing in disguise because it opened me up to sources that I had never been to. And because we ended up shooting all of the homes pretty much on the same block, we were so lucky that the neighbors and everybody's houses that we were shooting in were so uh, agreeable to let us borrow things that were actually period correct. So I had a few of my motherload events, you know, <laughs> where, where we hit it big. I discovered a wallpaper store that had some old wallpaper and they happened to have the right amount of rolls that we needed. Um, and, you know, we all made accommodations, whereas we were going to wallpaper a certain part of the architecture of the ceiling of the room. We held off until we saw that we could do all the walls. You know, we were always during this time shifting our concepts and, you know, trying our best to provide in this kind of situation, which I think helped me just organize my mind differently because there was nothing worth giving up anybody's safety. You don't feel like you're compromising because ultimately the goal was to keep the entire job safe and keep us shooting. It was making me think about the idea of, you know, in like Alicia Florex bedroom, getting a comforter and taking it fresh out of the packaging and having it be so, so smooth and slick and, and beautiful is one thing. But then when you're doing a, you know, young twenties bedroom, you're not going to have that. So how do you even go about things like, like a, like a bedspread or something? Do you, how do you do that? You can't just go to the store and buy something that looks all worn in and, and well-loved. It's true. We did a lot of laundry, literally. We yeah. you know, went to a laundromat and threw stuff in. And we also, again, did that so I could say to each one of the actors, because you do see them in bed, you're sleeping on a new mattress. That was paramount to me. So they felt safe. And you're sleeping or acting sleeping on linens that have been sanitized. You know, I was able to find linens both at prop houses, both at regular uh, home decor stores that looked the same. And I did use tactic of mine of not using sets of sheets, but, you know, maybe using one for the bottom one for the top and different pillowcases because in the seventies patterns were very layered and there was a lot of opportunity to speak the period through the drapes, the window treatments and the linens. 
And by the ages of these families, this is also the type of time I'm kind of at that stage in many ways with my own household where you have a bunch of like mixing and matching of sheets because you're like, I don't know why I still have like this one pillowcase from this Star Wars set, but then I have like a top sheet from this because of mishaps over the years or a a forgotten pillow at a sleepover or whatever. And so you kind of end up mixing and matching on accident, (laughs) not because it's fashionable, but because you're just over the years keeping different parts of different sheet sets. That is so true. And, you know, we experienced that a lot, again, when we did the exteriors, because we we helped tell the story with clotheslines. I haven't been on a job in a long time that, that has used clotheslines as, uh, you know, dressed clotheslines with clothespins and with, you know, laundry and towels to really speak to the story. And it did. You know, I brought stuff from home and we all kind of dug through our basements and you can really tell a period towel is right. You know, I had, you know, some period beach towels. I mean, period only because they were 20 years old and passable. But you're right about the patina of things, which is also extremely important. I hate to ever see a bed dressed with lines from the packaging of the sheets. Getting getting that touch, that actual feel, that patina that's on this level of fabric that should be worn and comfortable and that you can really feel it come through the screen, that is one of this set decorator's biggest pet peeves. And, (laughs) you know, we do a lot of steaming, a lot of laundry and a lot of steaming to soften things up and make them seem right. I feel like people have no idea the amount of things that you have to think about because I know that the comment of like, oh, you have to go shopping for your job. That's so amazing. But man, the idea of Beth standing in a laundromat and doing like (laughs) gobs of sheets and stuff, like my mind is blown about that idea because it just doesn't seem like that's what you have to be doing. But that's how you get the look. And I love that you're willing to go that extra mile to get the right look. It's very important to me. And this is, in a way, where decorating for a set and decorating for a home differ. But it is just something that I am visually drawn to, even in someone's private home. A lot of those kinds of things, whether it's making something symmetrical or making something not symmetrical, if that works better, or having your dust ruffle at the right height, these are things visually that do inform the level of decor and give you a certain sense of who's living in this place. It's hard to replicate mess in a way that people make mess. That's what we had to do. It's hard to replicate how things should look in a period piece when you're doing it from scratch, you know, when it's not the person living there. But this is what is really involved in the actual dressing of a set creating things that speak to the character 
in terms of their use, that you can watch that TV show and picture yourself in that chair where they're sitting and it all comes together because you're seeing detail after detail. And that is the key to my work that we always say, the top layer of life. And in this particular project, that was incredibly important. You have such a thankless job because I feel like people are so quick to point out like there's a water bottle that shouldn't be there. There's a <laughs> there's a this that wouldn't have existed at this time. But yet all the things you get right, all the moments that are just perfect, they just they just, their eyes just, you know, gaze right past it. They don't even notice it because it feels right. It feels comfortable. They didn't even see it. And and it's it, that must be difficult to have a job where people only notice your job when you did it wrong. But otherwise they just they just kind of don't even notice how many details you got perfect. Well, I can tell you that is true, but I can also tell you that I have had incredible fan interaction of people who now that they have the ability to stream and stop the screen and rewind and look again, I have engaged with fans who might be just as obsessive as I am about those details. And it's it's really great to hear from people who get it and who relate because it brings them back. When people have a way to connect personally from their life, which is why I think telling these stories in Bridge and Tunnel and what Ed has accomplished is it just touches the heart of someone who grew up having the same kind of experience, whether it's from hearing the Long Island accents to seeing the feathered hair or to, you know, any of the environments. Even on set, there were certain people who would come in and see things and have these aha moments. Hey, I had that exact same chair. You know, in, in, in an episode, I used a it's called a fan chair. It's the old, large, rattan, circular chair. That chair really speaks the period. And for anyone who had that corduroy bedspread or that fan chair or those chicken biscuits, I think, what were they? Those ch- chick something crackers? Chicken in a biscuit. Chicken in a biscuit crackers. I mean, yeah. I hadn't seen those, you know, since uh, I was the age of the kids in in Bridge and Tunnel. <laughs> They're so popular down south. <laughs> I still Good see them know. around. I, fa- I found the them box. in the grocery store. I mean, it's just amazing. And, you know, what they call these characters now is a squad you know when when you watch the show and you get into the episodes and you see how these particular characters interact they really are a squad and that brings back a lot of memories for people so most people don't realize that you're in charge of things outside as well as interiorly they probably think okay you're doing bedspreads you're doing dining room tables but they don't realize that you're having to worry about things like the street lights or you know what exactly different mailboxes look like or you know what the cars look like we did all of that Talk to me about that. How did you go about making sure you have the the old time New York taxi cabs or the the right police cars for the era? Well, the prop master on the job is the person responsible for the cars on the East Coast. On the West Coast, the transportation 
coordinator or the teamsters are responsible. So that is usually not in my area, although in this particular show, we had a van that the interior needed to be dressed. So I would assist there. Um, If you ever had a character who was living in their car or hiding something in their car, that kind of level of set dressing, I would also be responsible for. Period pieces in terms of outside, we changed a lot of lighting. We dealt with basketball hoops. We added a lot of lighting because there were some night scenes outside. We take a look at garbage cans. (laughs) Glamorous, right? Very. And we also dealt with a lot of greens on this job just in terms of even certain kind of plantings that were more appropriate in the 70s. So we did a lot of that. Um, Most of these houses had that kind of wood ship look. So, you know, we did a lot of adding to the beds of of wood chips and, uh, again, the, the the right greens for the period. And of course, we really dove in to find these beautiful exterior pieces of furniture, umbrellas. It's kind of shocking in a lot of ways that for some reason around now that this kind of vintage style was back in style and fairly accessible although out of stock because when we were (laughs) right when we were shooting you know and looking to acquire these things the summer had just passed so a lot of these items you know had been purchased we really uh lucked out you know and and in in small ways like for instance the two exterior chairs with the attached table right in between them something that might not be a part of more contemporary outdoor furnishings we found one of those and again you put the ashtray on it because that's period and it says it all so in in little spots we were able to really speak the period And, you know, park a period car in front of the house and change the lamppost and the mailboxes. And, you know, everybody's in their period wardrobe and it it sings, you know, it really starts to come together. When you're doing the the research that comes into this, I know that you're also trying to think about how to bring in some art, bring in some different looks that that still speaks to, you know, the the characters, but that also maybe brings in something more unique that maybe someone hasn't seen. Tell me a little bit about how you decide how to bring in some some art from the outside world, if you will. Well, in this situation, because, you know, of the socioeconomic class that this story tells, it was told mostly in graphics, you know, in posters, and not necessarily in great art. Although, you know, when you start to find embroidery and owls and floral designs that all speak to the period in this pop 
kind of way, you know, which was mostly from prop houses and whatever we could find, you know, whatever thrift stores were open and available. Again, the layer upon layer, when you see the floral dishes in the kitchen, when you see a certain kind of clock on the wall, or, you know, in the 70s, a lot of things weren't just paintings or posters, but they were three-dimensional, you know, a collection of butterflies, Uh, in metal. It's the materials as well. And that's what people notice. Like, oh, I haven't seen that woven basket with dried flowers, you know, since I was a teenager. Right. That macrame. Yeah. Yeah. We did. We did. We got some great macrame pieces at contemporary home furnishing stores that were selling them now yeah, because there's a, yeah. And that's what helped us also when, when you see companies that have retro throw pillows and certain mirrors with frames that are like rattan and rattan happens to be one of my most favorite things. So, you know, I'm always drawn to that and looking at that. What, what do you love so much about rattan furniture, Beth? I got to know. I need to know the secret. The secret workings of Beth's brain. For some reason, maybe it's what I associate that I really love about the period. I kind of love that rattan furniture, rattan anything has withstood the test of time. You know, when you think about it in the 40s, bamboo and rattan, it's beautiful, you know, all the way through till now. There's a huge resurgence towards it. Caned pieces. And I highly recommend including that in any kind of home decor you're doing. As a matter of fact, that might be one of my go-to things in general. There's there's a warmth to it that's really great. And as well as it's neutral enough that you could mix it with anything. Uh, we got in our heads that we had to have that fan chair. I love that. That reminds me so much of Mrs. Roper. <laughs> from, <laughs> exactly. Right? From Three's Company. Mm-hmm. Like, can you see her sitting in that? I love yes. it. I mean, we took a lot of inspiration from the characters. You know, probably one of the most important there was Jill's because her whole aspect of uh, what she, you know, was interested in was fashion design. We really worked to create her layer of life in her room. We had a sewing machine. We had a, a draping form. We had a trifold mirror. We found this incredible tin of of buttons, things that just had been a part of her work life as well. You know, when I go and dress a, a desk, we wanted to have all the right elements. When you go to dress a workspace for someone, even if it's in their bedroom, there were specific areas that I really wanted it to feel real for Jill and for what we were creating for her entire fashion-based scenario. So then we, you know, went through all the graphics that we could recreate. And again, everything had to be cleared and it had to be cleared quickly. So that gave us a little bit of a problem uh, and it had to be cleared you know, to work within our budget. But I started to look for art and thought about uh, fashion icons of the period. That led me to finding a perfect piece to put in, in the more bedroom 
area instead of the work area of that set that was done by a young artist, Zoe Schwartz. We made a commitment to her piece, a painting of Coco Chanel. And then we built off that and we started to think of other appropriate fashion icons. And we were lucky enough to uh, be able to recreate some fashion magazines. But again, all of this requires the research the clearance issues, the graphic designer to recreate covers. That is work that starts early in prep. And sometimes you hit it and you get what you want. And other times you settle there. But that was our goal, was to represent her with real fashion icons. I'm so excited that we actually have an artist that you worked with on the show, Zoe Schwartz, that she's actually coming on with us. And we're going to get to talk to her a little bit about how you guys did the process of obtaining her art and featuring her art in Jill's bedroom. Beth, we have a fantastic interview today that we are going to be sharing with our listeners. We have Zoe Rose Schwartz. She is coming on as an up-and-coming artist who is actually featured in Bridge and Tunnel, which is fantastic. We're so excited to get to talk to her today. Hey, Zoe, how are you doing? Hi, I'm so great. Um, I'm so excited for this conversation, and I'm so glad I was able to be a part of it. So your painting is featured in Jill's bedroom, and it's the Coco Chanel piece that people might have to zoom in on, but we will definitely have pictures of it on Beth's Instagram and yours and Pod Clubhouse mm-hmm. so that you guys can really see how fascinating Zoe's art is. But tell us, how did you come into painting? How did you find this world of art? Well, um, it's been a long journey, but um, my mom is an incredible artist and I grew up around art. Um, she actually had an art studio in New Jersey where I grew up, where she was the teacher. Um, so every day after school, you know, it was kind of an after school program and every day I was there, you know, kids go once a week, but I was there every day. And, you know, that just gave me a foundation of like, this is my life, you know, and I was creating all the time and, you know, drawing and this and that. And I was so inspired and growing up though, I kind of lost it. You know, I was in high school and I was doing all these things and I went to college actually for engineering. So I kind of steered my, my course a little bit (laughs) when I, I entered school. I loved studying math and science. I was, you know, there was a part of me that loved the analytical side of things. There's always an answer, you know, we're searching for, you know, a certain thing. And then, um, but I, I still remained creative, but I was not really, you know, I didn't step into that full creativity when I was, um, in college, but I would draw here and there and, you know, but then when I, I was nannying a family in the Hamptons for two summers in a row while I was in school. And I don't know, there was just a lifestyle in New York and, you know, I was exposed to some art there and I just kind of, decided to move to New York. And I think it was in New York. I really found my purpose again through my art. You know, there was, there's so much creative energy there. And, you know, I was inspired by just, you know, simply being there and walking around and going to museums and, you know, so it was, it was interesting that I came back to, you know, my roots and my foundation of being in the arts and an artist. Um, cause that's kind of where I found myself, but you know, I modeled, I was waitressing and, but I always, 
you know, would just be in my little apartment painting and drawing. And it eventually led to some amazing things. And, you know, following the path, it just kind of like brought me back home to my true self. So, so yeah, that's how I, you know, I've always been an artist. And, you know, I think my talent, I was kind of born with it. I think it was, you know, my whole family of artists in their own ways. And that's kind of how I got back into it. Also, even though I fell off for a bit. Well, Zoe, that makes me very happy because as a native Manhattan, night I really understand that level of influence that you could have being in museums and galleries in Manhattan. For someone mm-hmm. so young, your art has such an old soul to it, a, a real gravitas. Tell us more about what your influences are. I love how you put that because that's how I feel about it, you know, and I've always had such an old soul and that's what, you know, I want to show in my work. I want to show kind of pure soul and color and emotion and invoke something in people that, you know, maybe some art doesn't and, and kind of finding my way in my style. And I have a lot of different styles that I do in my art. You know, I think there's, there's a color channeling and then there's more of my soul work that, that tells a story about my own life. There's so many different types of artists in me that want to represent so many different things, which is a beautiful, you know, it's just a beautiful gift to, to be able to have so many different facets of my art. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think my influences, I would say, um, I'm, I mean, I love Picasso. I love the great artists of the past. You know, I love Chagall and William Blake and, you know, there's, and Frida Kahlo, you know, I, I love symbolism and how art is a tool to like translate some type of meaning into it and, and how you can speak to the soul of an individual, you know, and not just be like, Oh, this is a a cool piece of art. It looks cool, you know, but what, what does it mean? So I've always, and I've always been on such a search for meaning in life. So I think in art, there's, you can give it so much meaning, you know, and everybody has their own meaning for it. So it's really cool that I'm able to express and be vulnerable with different parts of myself and my soul and that people can see that in my work. So yeah, I've just always been influenced by, yeah, a lot of, a lot of artists from, you know, a long time ago. And that's always been, I've just been drawn to that type of art because it carries, I don't know, it just carries this mystery and this, this beauty that, you know, maybe sometimes I feel like art these days doesn't really give me that. So I'm like, I got to create that for myself, you know, and just, you know, do it, do it myself and uh, express myself in that way. That's so fantastic. It's very similar to how I feel about set decoration. It really yeah. does bring a different aspect to the viewer. Y'all's relationship as set decorator and artist is what we really want to talk about today because we see this scene in Jill's room in Bridge and Tunnel and we see this beautiful piece. It's Chanel. And I want to know more about why did you see this piece coming the way it did? And then we want to get into Beth and talk about why this was such a great piece for the for the show. Yeah, I've been doing these color channeling pieces for a while. And I I always wanted to choose people that really resonated with maybe my journey and just stepping outside of like the norm and creating their own, you know, adventure for themselves in life. You know, I had done these two, I think it was two bigger ones on canvas. And I did Nikola Tesla, who's, you know, obviously this amazing scientist that 
you, you know, we owe everything to electricity, all the things just, he's an artist in his own way. So, and then, you know, I kind of was like, all right, who, who's a profound female in history that has also done the same thing that has like stepped outside of the norm and created her own passion and purpose through perseverance and, you know, that through grit. So I, I, you know, I did some research and I was like, well, you know, I'm also very, I'm into fashion and that whole realm of things, how it ties to art. I saw her and, you know, just her as a figure in history is just like, so she's such a, I don't know, she's such a profound uh, female that really went out and did it. And that's where I feel like I want to connect with the people that I'm creating or painting and have like a piece of myself in there. Like, and I look up to her as she created this path for herself. She made a name for herself. She came from the bottom. And like, that's why I was so inspired to do her. And in the way, you know, there's how I do the color channeling is I choose different colors and I, you know, you see different faces. So it's just like, we all have different faces that we put on and we're channeling these different colors into life and how do we channel these colors in different ways and I thought doing her and then having you know these these double faces in the middle and then around it have this abstraction that adds something to it because it's you know you see this beauty inside this abstraction so it's like this beauty in the chaos um which is also I really love expressing that through my art is like finding beauty in the chaos and I think that's so important because in life you know you there's so much chaos around us and you know we can get overwhelmed by it but if we like sit back and just come back to center and with ourselves we realize like there's actually beauty in every aspect of life like even the good and the bad so I just thought you know with that concept of you know having the chaos around her and then this simplicity in the middle it 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 adds something to the design of the piece you know um and then it adds also meaning so yeah so that was a that was an amazing piece that I did and um yeah I think just being a female and a female artist and in the world is like such an, uh, an amazing thing that we can have role models and people that we look up to, to kind of follow along in their footsteps and uh, go along the path and carve ourselves our own path, I guess. <laughs> guess. So tell us, this is, this is one of your pieces from your color channeling series. Tell us a little bit about that collection. Yeah. So, so yeah, like I was saying, I actually, I don't even remember how the idea came came to me, but I had seen like some edit of a photo done that way, like a, you know, these colors playing with color channels. And I decided like, oh, you know, what would be cool is if I kind of like took that idea and fused it into my paintings. And so I think there's something so unique about having, you know, a portrait that's not just, you know, cause anybody can really paint a portrait, but what can you add to it that looks different or it has like the design is something that's intriguing. And I've always been in love with color. And I think like by having an image and, and, and a profound portrait and, and portraits are my special. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think I ever do a painting without like a face in it. It's just, I've always been drawn to faces and because there's something to it where like it, it opens a portal and in the canvas to like, you know, because when you look into someone's eyes, you see their soul. So it's like, how can this art come alive through the subject that I'm using? So I've always been so drawn to, you know, faces and things. So that idea just design wise, I saw 
how playing with these color channels on Photoshop or whatever in an image was so cool. And I'm like, how could I add this to my painting or integrate something like this in my painting to make it sort of different than what normal people are doing in portraiture? So yeah, so I decided, I don't even remember the first ones I did, but then it was like, you know, I was doing Basquiat and Warhol. And I think the actually the Mona Lisa was the one that really took me off on Instagram. Um, that kind of went viral on Instagram. Instagram. So the rainbow color channeling Mona Lisa, people were obsessed with that one, you know? So it was like, you know, I I was doing a bunch of them. I did Bridget Bardot. I did Bob Marley, Bob Marley, Kate Moss, Notorious B.I.G. I did, um, who else did I do? Muhammad Ali. So I was kind of like just exploring all these different profound figures in history and how they could also like give me inspiration for my own life and like their journeys. Like I was saying with Chanel too, is like, how does her journey relate to mine and how can I use her inspiration to kind of follow along my path and like be successful in what I'm doing. So I think it was like throughout that time I was painting these, these figures in history, but then at the same time, I'm like, I'm like starting my own journey and creating my own path in history and, and leaving my own mark in the world. So it's really cool to think back on it and and actually talk about it because, you know, when I'm in the process of making them and making them, and then all of a sudden I had this whole collection of these pieces that are these beautiful colors. And I think that color just adds so much to paintings and, and there's so much symbolic meaning to it. But basically the idea behind it also is that, like I said, you know, we all have these different faces that we put on. And, you know, when you look at these paintings, you see like three different faces with three different colors and colors mean something significant. And we all have, we all can channel our different colors in different ways. And I think that's whether that's like our personality or, you know, just like the gifts that we bring into the world and how can we yeah. How can we like integrate those together to just like be this full figure with color and life and beauty. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's such a cool, it was such a cool thing that I started and now, you know, it's amazing that I'm able to like be, yeah, I'm able to reach a lot of people with it. So yeah. That's fantastic. So Beth, talk to us a little bit, take us behind the velvet ropes, behind the curtain. Tell us what's the process of selecting a piece of art for a TV show? Well, this is so amazing to hear Zoe talk about the piece because in a way, the next layer of what she did came through how we were able to use her work to define Jill in so many similar connections of how she's speaking about defining her her own self and her artwork. We wanted the iconic image of Coco Chanel. And we also, even though it sounds like what she's doing, and you all can check out the exact piece, that it seems contemporary, it really bridges with the portrait that she's doing, that bridges to the period and the color, even though it's contemporary, with everything that we put in the room around it, really kept it sitting in the in the right period. And as a set decorator, I moved things around and moved the art around. We were, you know, using pushpins to put everything up, except 
Zoe's work as a painting. So it sort of stood out dimensionally from the rest of the items that we had. But it was like the middle of the starburst. Above the bed just informed the movement of everything else we dressed around it. It's amazing to me the level of thoughtfulness and deep thinking that she has as as an artist and basically as an untrained artist. But I think this layer of thought informs my layer of life informs all the layers that we want to bring to the character that Ed's written. It's like we're, you know, we're all functioning in the same little biosphere here that puts together art, film, fashion, decor, you know, all these creative aspects. And that's the juice right there. That's (laughs) why this worked out so well. So Zoe, from your side as the artist, what's, what's the process like for you? How does that that phone call sound what 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 do you think about being a part of this tv show um it was amazing you know i've never done anything like it and it feels good to be able to like share my art in that way and and it is yeah it's like a feeling deep inside where you're like oh wow like people appreciate my art and like want it to be a part of something bigger you know and that's always like just so yeah I'm just so grateful that I'm able to be a part of this yeah and like Beth was saying and just like how everybody works together and it all just comes together even like the meaning behind it and the purpose and yeah it just circles together in a in such a beautiful way yeah if you're an artist and you're out there and you're like I really want to have something of mine on a television show? In terms of selecting certain artists or pieces for whatever project I'm doing, part of it is how I become familiar with the artist. A a lot of artists reach out to me. Definitely Instagram and the things that I see on Instagram inform some of my choices. Or very often, either a director or someone else on the job will say to me, hey, you know, I'm connected to an artist that I I think you might want to know about. So there is a certain part of the research that gets done like that and the conceptualizing. And there's also a a certain kind of artist that's more appropriate for working in this situation because you know, we're not doing a commission here. We're using a piece that's already been created. That artist has to sign a real legal document for the studios to feel comfortable using their art. There is a fee involved, but I try to keep that fee low because uh, the artist is getting a lot of exposure from being in a TV series. And I do find that with my whole process of being able to share with an audience and have the fan base that I do and engage with people, you know, there have been some iconic pieces um, that even though I've answered the question a hundred times, that is one of the questions I get. Where can I find that piece of art? One of the other things that I think is so remarkable about Zoe is that she actually creates her art and then puts it in a situation by having a G clay made out of it, which is a a process where you can copy the art. The fact that she can sell her art for you know, under $40 on on her website, it's a whole new level because now she is actually allowing people to become 
art collectors for such a small investment that allows them to have a piece in their own home that's been popular on her Instagram, that's been in a TV show that will continue on. Again, it's, you know, one item that then has reached so many people. I really like that because I I think from my interaction with people, that's what they really want is to have something that visually they really respond well to. Okay. And then Zoe, for you, how does it make you feel that you're able to make art more accessible to people, both in the cost, but then also in your process that, that you do allow copies and that things are being shown on television? How does that make you feel as an artist? I've always wanted to be easily accessible to everybody. And especially because on Instagram, I noticed that a lot of my following, you know, they're, they're young artists and, you know, they're, they're not like necessarily collectors. That's why, like, I've set different routes open. And, you know, whether it's on my website, I sell prints. Yeah. And the prints, you know, the prints aren't, you know, limited edition, you know, they're not at a higher price point, but it was like me having to realize, like, I do want people to have my art in their home. And, you know, I think some people say in the art world, oh, you shouldn't do this and that, but I've kind of carved my own way and I've like want to do it on my own and, you know, set my own path. And, you know, I don't, I don't care to like follow certain rules in the art world and how to do certain things, but yeah, I want my art to be seen. I want people to enjoy it. And I know that they're in the past. Yeah. I hadn't done really just, you know, prints that are easily accessible on my website. Not a lot of people could afford to like, even like a $200 print that, you know, I would sign people were like, Oh, I wish I could have that, you know, and I want to be able to provide something for people and have my art in their home without them having to spend tons of money. And even if that's just, you know, a print of it, you know, there's something special about that to just know that people really appreciate me enough to, you know, want to have this little print in their house and to be able to look at and and there's and then each part of me is yeah there's there's parts of me in different paintings and pieces and when people they'll reach out to me and say I'm so you know I, I love your work and I love that you know maybe I bought this print and I'm so obsessed with it or they bought you know a drawing or something and it's just it makes me feel good that I can share that with the world and then yeah and being in a TV show I mean it's just like a whole different story because I'm now part of this story and this, this show and, you know, how even the characters and it's just so interesting to me that, uh, this could all happen and very grateful. We're spreading the love everywhere, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like I said, it's so great also being an artist and being able to have an outlet such as Instagram to really show and share my work. You know, it's, it's really a blessing that these days, you know, artists, I mean, we're so grateful to be able to do that throughout history. People were never be able to, to share their work and be like, oh, I just finished this painting. I'm going to share it and get a response right away or see pe- how people react to it. And there's something special about that, too, because and also in, in TV shows and, you know, movies and whatever. But you can reach so many different people and they appreciate the art within the art, you know. So it's like there is the movie and TV is an art in itself. And then when you put art inside of it and design and you know you realize what goes into how they create an environment for characters and actors to be in and and tell that story so it's just art is everywhere now and it's so cool that we're able to experience that yeah 
your poetry is as expressive as your art. One painting that I think is absolutely one of my favorites uh, starts with a poem that says, the paint that is my soul bleeds through the canvas that is my body. Can you talk to us a little bit about your process and how you channel your creativity when you choose to paint versus write? Sometimes you do all three, photography, self-portraiture, writing, and painting all in one piece. Yeah, I don't know. I I mean, I'm very like an all over artist. And I think there's so much more I want to explore within myself in those different outlets, because I find there's a lot of paintings that I do that like mean something very deep. And, you know, how do I share that? and get that across with just having the piece. And sometimes there's a hard time, you know, I I find like this disconnect. I'm like, what, what is missing in terms of like how I could express the meaning of this or the meaning of, you know, even just, yeah, like you said, just a poem, it's like, there's something more I want to express. And I know that, you know, yes, I'm, I'm a painter and I paint, but there's, there's something inside of me that feels called to different outlets in different ways. And I think it's beautiful when you can see the correlation between all of the different ways to show art and um, visually and, you know, and then writing and how can you bring them together in a certain way. And I think I want to do a lot more of this in the future, but um, I'm telling stories and, and telling stories in a way that is very expressive and poetic. I've always loved stories that have poetry in it. I've just read countless books. Like, I don't know. And I, and I read a lot of like old, like philosophers, journals and stuff. Um, there's this one guy, uh, Henry Amiel, and he just so his, his words just inspired me so much. And he has this journal that, um, I was actually led to by Leo Tolstoy, who's a philosopher. Um, what is art? He wrote this essay about what is art. And in that, you know, he opened up this doorway to this other book, then this other guy, Henry Amiel, and the way that he was able to describe himself and life. And it was just so beautiful and opened me up in a way that I was like, wow, I'm so inspired to do more with words even. And it's like words in themselves have their own power. They carry something really special. It's like, you know, you have a painting, but then I think it's the next layer of how can I make this painting go a little bit farther without even adding to the painting. But it's, let's say you add a little paragraph or a poem or something. And all of a sudden, you know, you see the painting and you get something out of it. And then you re- you also read the poem. And then there's something that intertwines this play of, you know, experience in, in between the two that just like, to me, opens up a new layer of like understanding of art, the art in general. It's just amazing that there are so many different creative routes and ways to go. And I think that moving forward, I want to do, and I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I want to do more of writing with my work. And, you know, there, there's something so special about sharing it in two different ways, you know, and, and poetry. I mean, when I was a little girl, I would write, I would have these, all these poetry books and I would just, I was so excited. I wanted to be a poet. And I was like, so set on that. Painters are poets in their own way, you know, but I think getting back to that expression of my soul through words, just even for myself and for my own expression of who I am, I I think I want to encourage people to be vulnerable with sharing their own poetry and their own words that come just from their heart and not 
being afraid to do that. And I think maybe some people are afraid to share and think, oh, this is bad or, you know, but I, I encourage that. I think it's so beautiful when people can open up on that level and really share a part of themselves. So yeah, I, I mean, I really encourage poetry and art and instead of thinking, oh, it has to be this beautiful, amazing thing, but just allowing it to just come through and be a part of your soul and your spirit and just like inspire others to do the same. Zoe, you totally inspire me at this time when people are looking for such relief and ways to create and considering that you're as young as the characters that we portrayed in Bridge and Tunnel, everything that you're saying and bringing to this new audience is really impactful and just a beautiful thing. Thank you. So you're clearly a super creative spirit. And we noticed on some of your videos on Instagram that you're wearing headphones while you paint and we have to pick your brain. What are you listening to? What kind of music inspires you? I like to listen to like spiritual books and things that like, you know, make me feel connected to myself and connected to the world. I, I don't know. I listen to like very mellow, like indie music or classical. I, I'm, I'm like really into classical music and like music that can really touch me in a way that like makes me feel something, you know? And so that's really important. I think when I'm painting is to be able to feel because that, it makes the painting that much better, you know, when you're in this, this zone of like, I'm feeling deeply. And sometimes it's, you know, it's kind of sad music or it's this or that. It depends on what mood I'm in to like really get into flow with what I'm working on. It's a lot of different things, but I'd say very mellow, like chill, whether it's classical or just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Some of our podcasts, we actually include a Spotify playlist with them because, you know, they kind of get the listener in the mood of a certain podcast that the show we're talking about or what have you. It sounds like you need to make a Zoe's playlist. <laughs> oh, yeah, I do. I do have some great. I do have some great playlists. Yeah, for sure. You got, maybe you got it. You got to sell those playlists with your paintings, friend. Yeah. You got to get out there. Do that. Yeah, true. I know. <laughs> I know. We're, we're all about layering it on Pod Clubhouse. So tell me, yeah. Zoe, how can people reach you? Where can they see your art? How can they buy your art? My main outlet is Instagram. I like to share, you know, whether there's, you know, there's a lot of time-lapse videos and just my life and me and uh, my paintings. So I think that that's like my main outlet, which is just my name, Zoe Rose Schwartz. And then also I have my website, zoeschwartz.com. So on there, those are kind of like all my paintings there to see in the past that I've done. And then there's prints on there. I also do have a blog, which I have to get back into. If anybody wants to go check it out, there are some um, pieces in there that what, what inspires me and some paintings and actually like one about me as a little girl and how I got into art. So there are some blog posts on there, which really go kind of go into things more. I do take color channeling commissions. So um, if anyone's interested in those, um, yeah, my email is on my website and my Instagram. So I'm, I'm totally open to whatever. Uh, Our producer's birthday is in February. We'll have to <laughs> consider that won't we? <laughs> yeah yeah for sure so you've been fantastic yeah, fantastic yeah. thank you so much zoe for not only allowing me to be inspired by you and use your art on set but for going this deep into the process with everybody it's totally been a pleasure yeah of course thank you guys so much for having me and i'm so yeah i'm so excited to be able to express this to the world <laughs> fantastic thanks so much Zoe, we will be in touch and we can't wait to have all these great uh, different avenues that people can, can 
can reach you through it, and they'll be all listed out on our Instagram and our Twitter, all the good places. We'll be able to reach Zoe anytime you'd like to. Thanks so much, Zoe. We super appreciate talking to you. Yeah, thanks so much. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. I want to give a special thanks to Ed Burns for joining us to talk about my new show, Bridge and Tunnel, and to Zoe Rose Schwartz for sharing so much great insight with us about her artwork. I'm giving you all a new, easier way to find me on Instagram. My handle now is Beth Kushnick, B-E-T-H. K-U-S-H-N-I-C-K. Please DM me with your questions. Thanks for listening. You guys, make sure that you check out Bridge and Tunnel over on Epics. Um, they are going to be winding up their, their season, and I'm so excited that we can still catch them on demand and streaming. So make sure you head over there. This is a fantastic show that really features so much great period pieces that Beth has brought together. And I'm super excited to see her work on the on my screen again, Beth. That's so exciting. Thank you. Yay! Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave a five star review it helps in promotion of the show thanks guys five stars decorating the set from hollywood to your home is a original pod clubhouse production recorded edited and produced at pod clubhouse studios for more information please visit us online at podclubhouse.com don't forget to rate review and subscribe to decorating the set at apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts thank you for listening